Um, Let me open by reading um, our New Testament lesson, I think just from this last Sunday, Hebrews chapter 11. And um, this is, of course, looking back to Abraham and the chapter on faith and the assurance of God's people through various sufferings and trials. Um, But I'll begin reading at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead, were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. A great passage filled with great promise and blessing. And while our sermon didn't focus on that text, um, we can sort of look at that text here in this context and, and see that the author to the Hebrews is clearly holding forth Abraham's sojourn, his exile, as a model for the believer today. Uh, whatever we may think of it, there was a, uh, there's always a meme, right? Someone uh, this week on the internet was making fun of a micro-event. <laughs> it's like a microaggression, right? A micro-event that was a gathering on the theme of gospel exile. And so the debate here was pitched between um, two different camps, as it were, of the broadly reformed and evangelical world, and the one sort of a more robust, um, I won't say, sort of Christian America, Christian nationalism, theonomic camp saying, um, A, why are you using gospel as an adjective, right? Let's stop using gospel as an adjective. But, but why are you saying that Christians are called to suffer? Why are you... And actually, many of the comments on this thread said, gospel exile, like, that's silly. It's like, well, no, it's not. I I might not like the phraseology, right? But this is... I didn't mean to wake up the baby. There I went. (laughs) Bring it down a little bit. New forum. There's not that many people in the building. Oh, okay. It's like, Dad, you're home. (laughs) Uh, This is exile in the gospel epoch of the church. And that's what they meant to be talking about. So again, I'm neither here nor there with that particular uh, presentation. But what we are here to do is to talk a little bit about uh, this debate, conversation that's going on in the church today, very much so, about how the believer relates to our culture, church and culture. 
Um, this is a perennial debate, and one of, uh, for Luke and myself and, and many others in the Reformed world, uh, David Van Drunen, uh, his book, Living in God's Two Kingdoms, has been a very helpful book. I never had, uh, I'm too old to have had Dr. Van Drunen as a professor, uh, but he has spoken at our church before. I think we have some older audio from him in like 2013 or 2011, something like that. Um, when we did a, a conference, a, a micro-event on this topic. Um, but he's a very clear thinker, and he comes out of the strain of um, Augustine, two cities, uh, and or uh, Lutheran or Reformed or Reformational uh, two kingdoms viewpoint. Now, oftentimes this is invoked when people have a narrowly, and especially in this city, a narrowly political conversation. Uh, but one of the things we want to emphasize, we've talked about Christian politics before, that we don't want to just talk about politics. That's really a narrow slice. Uh, this touches on our callings in, this, in, the, in the world. This touches on education. This touches on family. And it's a very important topic. And I'm just going to really tonight kind of briefly uh, summarize. I know I sent out the link to this book a little late. So this is recommended reading. Hopefully, what I hope to do is, is present Roughly following his outline, Luke and I will present some lessons, have some conversations. Um, the book is can add to that, um, but it's not necessary. And one of the things he opens with is reference to H. Richard Niebuhr, who famously wrote a book about Christ and culture that I'll talk a little bit tonight, earlier uh, in this century, last century, 1951. He said, it's helpful to remember, quoting Niebuhr, that the question of Christianity and civilization is by no means a new one. That Christian perplexity in this era, this area has been perennial. And that the problem has been an enduring one through all the Christian centuries. So there has been this enduring uh, question. Um, and I think this quote gets at this tension. And it's important for us to realize this isn't merely about how do Christians do politics in the world? How do Christians do education? How do we do family? What's our view of work? Um, what's our view of the state? This is also a gospel issue because it really relates back to what is the church's calling in the world? What is the church's mission of the world? And so it's not only, and this is a very modern view of this, like individual faith and politics, right? It's the matter of how do we conceive and understand the church as the kingdom of God? And what's its relationship to the kingdoms of men in the world today? Um, so that's what we want to get at over the coming weeks. I'm, I'm hoping to present, and, and this is a very practical book. At the, at the end, he has some sort of practical conversations in the final section. Hopefully, I want to pull those forward and sprinkle them throughout the series. And so tonight, um, if we have a little time at the end, I just want to open things up. But I'm going to throw out the question now. You can be sort of turning it over in your head as, as I present. Um, my daughter came home from school, and she goes to a wonderful ecumenical school, a lot of Catholics, a lot of Protestants. And she said, Dad, I have Friday off. They always take uh, the day of the March for Life off. It's a teacher in service day. Just accidentally, that happens every year. It's remarkable. Um, and she said, I really want to go to the March for Life this year. I'm like, that's great. And so she's going to be going tomorrow. But we're um, marking 50 years. And it's interesting to think, especially in this year, post-Dobbs, and in the changes there, um, how has that political, cultural engagement. It's not just political, right? Think of all the crisis pregnancy centers. Think of all the different ways the church and different churches have engaged on that issue. How has that impacted the church's witness in the world? And how has that impacted the way the world views the church? So I want to put a pin in that and maybe get your comments or conversation at the end of our, our discussion tonight.
So, first of all, this famous book, uh, 70-some years ago, Niebuhr's Christ and Culture, he presents five models. Um, and, and the first two are kind of, we can think of them as the extremes. The first one is Christ against culture. So this is that Christians and the church are in a, in a battle with a dark and fallen world. Um, and I have to be totally honest, I didn't go back and read Christ and Culture. This is, you know, I have uh, doctoral seminar notes on, on this material. But just taking a quick summary that you can find anywhere on the internet. So Christ against culture would be sort of a fundamentalist withdrawal. Right, um, we could think of some maybe fundamental communities that we know. Maybe another sort of extreme Mennonites or Amish. Um, in the ancient church, Tertullian took this sort of path. You can't follow any of of the world's uh, learning, any of the world's uh, entertainments. And on the opposite end of the polar spectrum would be Christ of culture. And so, in the modern context, we might think of liberal Protestantism. Jesus just teaches us all the same lessons in a more friendly way that the world teaches us. So there's no conflict. He is a model and a paragon. Um, Ancient Gnosticism had similar tendencies. Just Christianity almost just disappeared with life in the world. Um, It really integrated. So Christ against culture, Christ of culture. A different model that Niebuhr presents is Christ above culture. And he uses this to describe um, sort of a a Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox idea, perhaps. Uh, Maybe Aquinas, we might want to think of. Of the Christian faith is... Uh, takes culture and brings it to its climax or fulfillment. So it's building upon the foundation of creation, and it's that little extra that takes us to its fulfillment or fruition in God and its creator. Uh, the last two categories, um, and again, you know, you may or may not like this schema, but it just kind of gives us some way to think of the landscape. The last two categories are uh, Christ and culture in paradox, and sometimes Luther is invoked here, right? Um, a, a sense that these two um, realms, these two orders, um, overlap with one another. Um, the idea of dual citizenship, which we'll also pick up a little bit in, in Vendrunen, and I think is a biblical con- concept, right? Um, talk about it in a moment, but Paul claims to be a citizen of Rome, and he claims to be a citizen of heaven. Both of those things are true at once. Creates a certain paradox, The believer lives with a foot in each kingdom. And there's a lot of muddling through that goes on. Um, So that's Christ and culture in paradox. Finally, and Niebuhr sees this as the Reformed. We might uh, talk about it a little bit tonight. And we will talk about it a little bit full over this this final category. Christ the transformer of culture. Um, Sometimes Augustine is put in either one of these last two categories. Uh, Calvin is sometimes, and the Reformed tradition, seen as Christ, the transformer of culture. I'm a um, graduate of Calvin Theological Seminary, which is distinct from the college, but uh, we see this in in sort of neo-Calvinism, Abraham Kuyper, um, the claim uh, that um, Kuyper quote that's often quoted, that there's every square inch of God's creation is claimed for his glory. Um, and so we'll, we'll get into that a little bit more. So these are five broad models. And this question comes up of perennial import. It's, in, it's of gospel significance. It's of significance to our sanctification. How do we live out our faith? It's of significance, as I said, to our ecclesiology. What's our view of the church? Um, and one of the difficulties of this debate that um, I don't think people mention a lot is it really depends a lot on context. 
And so every age kind of has to answer these questions anew. If you think of Paul writing in the time of Nero, right? And frankly, it's a fundamentally different question if you're the Apostle Paul, and how do you live faithfully as a believer, uh, versus a couple hundred years later, when Constantine is converted, Christianity is legal, and now he's calling a council of Nicaea, right? Now the emperor is putting his hand on, on the scales, his finger on the scales, as it were, to upbuild the church and to create it as a cultural foundation. How do you react? How do you react as a believer in those different contexts, in a medieval context of Christendom, for instance? And so it's an ever-changing issue. Um, think of America. Think of the, the, early, um, the early Pilgrim Fathers, um, some of those colonies, explicitly Christian. Think of the 19th century, um, a war that had, a uh, civil war that had Christian overtones, redemptive overtones for the nation, a lot of uh, Lincoln's rhetoric. Think of the 20th and 21st century. Um, there's a lot of contemporary confusion, and that's what I want to turn to uh, now. Before I move on, any questions about Niebuhr's categories, where we are in the world, how I'm setting this up? Okay, good. Well, first of all, we agree, um, and, and I'll be looking a little bit about the confusion today, especially in sort of the Reformed and Evangelical world, in terms of... Uh, this final category, Christ, the transform of culture, uh, Dutch, uh, what we call redemptive transformation. And one thing I want to assert is that there's a lot that we all agree upon. And let's talk about the foundation first of what we all agree upon. A, God is the creator of all things, right? Um, all creation does belong to God. Kuiper's quote is true. Every square inch belongs to him, and he will claim ultimate ownership of it at the end. Second, God rules over all things, and humans are accountable to him in all areas of life. No one in this discussion, now maybe there are some, but no one in this discussion believes that as a Christian, you know, you come to church and you do your, your Christianity thing, and then you go to work and you're totally free of God's rule or reign or love or care for your life. Um, third, all sides in this sort of debate believe that it is good for Christians to be involved in cultural pursuits. Um, we are not advocating for withdrawal from culture. Believers should be um, citizens. They should be um, laborers, um, thinkers, educators, students um, in politics. You know, it's, it's an interesting question, maybe uh, related to this. <laughs> I, I was in a Bible study my senior year of college. This is going back in... Uh, we actually had a debate within the Bible study whether or not it was a legitimate Christian profession for a woman to be a stripper. Um, <laughs> so I think there probably are some professions which are beyond the pale, right? But it would be an interesting conversation. I mean, there have been tensions where some Christian traditions have said you cannot be a soldier or a law enforcement officer, for instance. Um, so if there is a cultural activity that explicitly violates the law of God, there are ways in which we may not engage in culture. But it's an interesting question. In what sense can we embrace that which the full uh, spectrum of, of human existence throws up, which is what culture is? You know, you go back to ancient Rome, and a lot of times you see, you know, among the inscriptions, some pornographic materials, right? That's a part of ancient culture. And it's clearly what is driving the impulse of Tertullian to say, no way, we can't have anything to do with that. Um, and that really gets to our, our fourth point. Sin penetrates all areas of life. 
The world we need in needs to be radically renewed and recovered. And we can affirm that. And uh, fifth and finally, and this is a very important issue, but there is agreement that the Christian hope is a bodily resurrection. The Christian hope is a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth. And so there, we will see that the different people have a different perspectives on what that means, how we get from here to there. Um, very, very broadly speaking, uh, you know, Michael Horton, for instance, speaks of the fact that you know, in the book of Revelation, the city of God comes down from heaven. Now, that's a visionary experience. It's not literally, you know, this massive city the size of a cube, the size of the western United States, coming down out of the sky. But that visionary image has real-world meaning. And if anything, I think the clearest meaning is it's created by God and it comes cataclysmically upon us. Um, That's one of the the themes of, of New Testament end times eschatology hope. So where's our disagreement? What's the the fight, at least in the sort of reformed and broadly evangelical world? He puts um, three different impulses in this book, and and one of them is is a little bit dated. The book, I think, is about 2009. He talks about emergent Christianity. Um, Some of you are probably young enough not to have ever heard of that, which is a wonderful thing. Just a great reminder of how quickly fads come and go in American uh, church life. Um, not really important to what he says about emergent Christianity, but it, it does reflect some themes that are still kicking around. First, contemporary neo-Calvinism. Uh, a three-point summary um, for this neo-Calvin view. Grace restores nature through redemption in Christ. So the gospel is restoring this fallen created order. That's the first sort of theme. The second theme is God is sovereign and orders all of reality. And that's kind of the Calvinistic theological influence, right? A a religious tradition that emphasizes the sovereignty of God. And that's the thrust of of Kuiper's point. There's every square inch. God is sovereign over everything. You know, uh, Sproul's classic line. There's not a maverick molecule in the universe. He's controlling them all. And uh, Genesis 1 is the third point. The cultural mandate has ongoing relevance today. So... He gives a couple examples, uh, Cornelius Plantinga, Engaging God's World. Uh, he talks about another author, author Walters. Um, and the, uh, the neo-Calvinist view really emphasizes heavily the summarization, the summarizing of the biblical story as creation, fall, redemption. That's a good summary as far as it goes. There's nothing wrong with it, but Conrad, are you laughing? <laughs> summarization. Yeah. Well, yeah... Uh, our email thread about uh, <laughs> 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 um, so creation fall redemption fall derailed God's or creation's original goal salvation is essentially in this schema viewed as recreation or restoration and all cultural labor this is the third point is kingdom work so our cultural labor is a part of the redemption creation fall redemption. We are now swept up in the redemptive work of God. And this neo-Calvinistic view is is arguing against, um, you need to get the context here, it's arguing against this, that, that first sort of Christ against culture. It's arguing against the fundamentalist impulse to withdraw. And, and we can say amen to this, right? We aren't advocating that withdrawal. But they blame that sort of withdrawal on a very narrow view of what it means to be saved and redeemed. A view of, uh, which they call sometimes a vertical view, that we're saved out of this world. 
right? Um, sometimes uh, this vertical view of salvation, as in their description, involves an escape from this world into heaven that's not material. Like we go from here up to the harps and the clouds and floating around, right? And so that the re-emphasis here of, of this neo-Calvinistic image is like, no, redemption is not escape from the body. It's the redemption of the body. It's the restoration of this creation. And God makes us a part of this task and of this labor. Now, uh, I've spent a lot of time around folks that advocate this view. And there are a lot of wonderful things about this view. It really charges our lives with meaning and significance. Our work in the world is, you know, um, a part of God's redemptive restoration of all things. On the flip side... Uh, you can get into sort of some questions that are uh, border on the absurd. You know, what is what does redeemed plumbing look like, right? What is redeemed finance? How do you how do you redeem police work? Um, you know, if I'm supposed to turn the other cheek, how do I arrest a rapist? And so there are some tensions here, and uh, we don't want to to caricature their view as much as we don't want them to caricature a different view. But let's just say for now that they have this fear of this dualistic view of salvation that pits uh, a spiritual against a bodily uh, redemption. So that's sort of the neo-Calvinist take on this transformative view. And I think this is largely the air that we breathe in this city, a lot of Christians in the nation's capital, and and a lot of contemporary Christianity. Um, He cites, again, the emergent church and also the new perspective on Paul. N.T. Wright, this name may or may not be familiar to you. N.T. Wright is somewhat uh, well-known for a different understanding of how Paul is talking about salvation and justification in the New Testament uh, among some other contemporary uh, New Testament scholars. Um, But one of his books is, he talks about, um, the book is titled Surprised by Hope. Uh, Again, this emphasis on a this-worldly resurrection and eschatological hope. Um, Not individual salvation, but the redemption of the whole created order. What we do now is building God's kingdom. And what this means is that if the church is involved in redemption, an agent of redemption, the church's mission is not just narrowly evangelism or preaching the gospel, but it is broadly working for justice, for peace, and for beauty in the world. Again, this is not an argument against justice or peace or beauty. The question is understanding our roles and how do we contribute in God's uh, saving work. Um, the, uh, The emerging church is very similar Really an emphasis on this worldly Christianity. The gospel is about changing this world, not about a heavenly hope. So, let me briefly articulate a two kingdoms approach and then where we plan to go through this series. This is really an overview and introduction. Um, Does anyone have any any questions or comments about this redemptive transformation view uh, that two kingdoms is going to present something of a little bit of an alternative to And by the way, um, let's be clear, we are, um, one of the things that I like to remember in this whole conversation of Christ and culture is uh, that there aren't really a lot of clear uh, black and white lines that, uh, um, maybe this is me channeling my Lutheran paradox position, right? There's, uh, if you are in the transformationalist camp, uh, you can be a member of our church, (laughs) 
this isn't about, uh, there are, are faithful Christians on a lot of different sides of these views. And so I want to encourage you to ask questions, to object, to, to counter-argue. Uh, arguments that maybe we hear in the workplace, maybe we agree with. There are a lot of compelling elements of this vision. Uh, yes, good. It's not really about the transformationalist approach, what it is, what it means. Uh, but where would you view that as being predominant? within, say, the Nate Park world. I, I hear that approach, and I immediately think Tim Keller in New York City, broadly PCA kind of stuff, but how much of a foothold does it have, say, in continental reformed thinking? So um, that's, a, that's a really good question. The, the question for everyone is, uh, where in the broader Presbyterian and Reformed world does this transformationalist vision have, have uh, purchase or hold? Um, I do think that there's a, a wing of the PCA where it's pretty prevalent. The PCA is not my home turf. Um, but I think, um, you know, when I, it's been 15 years probably, more than 15 years, when I visited uh, Redeemer in New York City. And I believe at that time, and I think it changed because I tried to go back and look for it. The tagline was redeeming the city, right? Uh, that's been nuanced or changed or maybe massaged a little bit. But that just causes a huge you know, question mark in my head. Um, what does it mean to redeem the city? What would that look like? And also, um, you know, where does Christ promise that the cities of the world, the kingdoms of the world, are going to be redeemed in that way. I don't see that as a New Testament commission charge to the church, to believers, as they go out in, in obedience to the Great Commission. Um, so that, that's how I would push back against that. You mentioned, where is this though? So it was very, I would say, pervasive in a lot of Christian higher education uh, my experience with Calvin College, uh, Covenant College. What would you say? I see some heads nodding back there. Um, Grove City. Um, so, um, you know, in Calvin, it was very pervasive. I mean, that was sort of the epicenter of Neo-Calvinism. Um, and uh, I, I taught a, a Jan term class there when I was a doctoral student. And they had this Jan term period, and the whole thing, it was part of their freshman curriculum. And it was like, you know, you take classes your fall semester, and then in your January term of your freshman year, you do faith and blank. So this is all about redeeming the world. You do like faith and biology, faith in this, and, and I did faith in, in Augustine. So it was kind of faith and faith. <laughs> Redeemed Augustine, yeah. And so we read the City of God, and it was it was interesting because this the there you know there were like fifty faculty members who taught different sections to this this Jan term seminar, and it was um, you know all about taking your faith to biology, to economics, to all these different places, and and I said, well, you know, let's let's do you know let's take our faith to to Augustine's view of um, you know the City of Man. What does it mean? How does what is Augustine describing there? So. Um, I think it, it's, it's really, there are parts of um, the Reformed world that have some inclination or tendency more towards theonomy. Um, that is not as prevalent now as it was maybe in the 80s or the 90s. But some sort of the church should be assertive in the political sphere. And that's uh, the church being a prophetic witness in the kingdoms of this world. Um, even America should be a Christian nation in some versions. I think there's a lot of that in conservative Presbyterian and Reformed thought. 
Um, and, and there's tension between that view and a two kingdoms view. Um, they would see two kingdoms as being more of a withdrawal, more of a, a passiveness. Um, so I don't, anyone else have any other, other comments where you've maybe seen or, or perceived this sort of transformationalist vision? Not to hijack anything, and I don't want to hold you up from getting through what you want to present. I'm getting through it. You know. I'll, I'll just say, for the sake of discussion, uh, I find the transformationalist approach just unsupportable from actually reading and understanding the Bible. That's just my opinion. Um, that being said, I think the age that we're living in right now, we need to be a little bit careful how much we laugh about the idea about, you know, faith and economics. What, what does it mean to be a, a Christian plumber? What does it mean to redeem whatever? Because the so-called woke ideology, broadly speaking, is doing exactly that. You read articles about it online every day. Math is racist. And so you kind of have questions that border on some of the Trumpian Republican politics questions about can one side completely back off and let the other side take a dominant position. So it's an interesting question for me to, to think about. Yeah, and I, and I think you know one of the insights of 20th century apologetics in the Reformed world, uh, Cornelius Van Til, who taught at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, is right that the world is not uh, there is no thing as neutral secularism, right? And we would affirm that there there is a, very much a religious lens through which the world is going about its business. And I think you're right to say that as we enter sort of a season of of greater extremes in lots of areas of life, not just politics, but um, a little bit more polarization. Uh, there is that sort of absolutizing of the various different idols in the world, right? And so, yeah, I, I think it's absolutely right. There's a lot to be learned here, and a lot of um, we definitely do not want to be understood to be advocating this view that there's this neutral sphere we enter into when we go into the world uh, to engage in things. So that's it's a very good point to, to look out for. So. Again, a brief, brief summary, and this is really a forecast of what we're going to talk about um, as the book unfolds. What is the, what is the two kingdoms approach? First, uh, Van Drunen notes that we can learn a lot from the, this neo-Calvinistic perspective. Creation is good and sin distorts it. Absolutely. God has not abandoned his original goal for creation. We affirm the new creation and a bodily resurrection. This world is going to be uh, redeemed. Um, we should, and this is to your point, Chris, we should think critically about sin's effect on our cultural life, um, on everything from sports to film to music to the economy, right? The marketplace. Um, we should absolutely engage in that and use our Christian faith to understand our place in the world. Um, resurrection and new creation are the great Christian hope. Here's the problem. Uh, transformationalists suggest that their view is the only way to affirm these things. And I don't think that follows. And that's one of uh, Van Drunen's uh, main point. We believe they're incorrect. We think that the, the scriptures hold forth another way to affirm all those good things. And also to think about how our lives in the world have meaning. And the, the title of the series is Luke and I were spitballing back and forth. Serving God in the city of man. And what we mean by that is the world is the city of man. This goes back to Augustine's two cities, uh, two, uh, two realms. There is the kingdom of God in the world, and that is really represented 
um, by the church, which is a, a sort of a beachhead, a breaking in of the new creation. And so we get this foretaste of coming heavenly glory. I think another, uh, another thing that's, that's useful to think about is we think about redemption. It's not so much that we're talking about, um, you know, sometimes um, a simplistic view is like, you know, heaven is up there in the clouds. And, and the scriptures do use that relational metaphor sometimes. But the key idea of coming heavenly glory isn't that we're going to leave this place. It is not escapist. It is future. Uh, the future is what the Holy Spirit kind of claws and brings back into our current experience. I just uh, audited uh, a course at Westminster Seminary um, about the millennium in the book of Revelation. So chapter 20. Um, and the course was really a, a broad discussion of, of eschatology, how the New Testament talks about the new creation. And one of the emphases there was um, that Christ is the first fruits. Right? When Paul is arguing about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, he's saying he sees this as the climactic eschatological world-ending event, the resurrection of all human flesh. It started in Christ. And then he makes this argument, the corruptible can't inherit the incorruptible. We have to be raised to enter the kingdom of God. And this is one of the real problems when we think of all this work being kingdom work here. Yeah, in a sense, we're seated in the heavenly places with Christ. But in a very important sense, that reality does not come until Christ brings it in a cataclysmic uh, way. So our vision of eschatology is very important here. So um, Calvin, Augustine, Luther, they all affirm the value of our cultural callings. There are a lot of different ways in the history of the Christian church to affirm our engagement in culture. Uh, and yet, to carefully distinguish them from the coming of the kingdom and the hope of the new creation. We can say that parenthood... I'm. Looking at mothers here with kids, right, is a good and lovely thing, a valuable thing. And Luther has wonderful discussion of this. But he doesn't think that the mother is redeeming her baby. Christ redeems her baby, right? The waters of baptism uh, purify and set apart her baby to a holy purpose. So this two kingdoms view has a positive view of cultural activity with certain reservations, uh, the reservations are this, that our present culture is temporary, provisional, and passing away. God's common grace, we talked about this a little bit, right, in Abimelech in the Old Testament. God's natural law, his sending forth of the rain on believers and unbelievers alike, preserves the natural order. And one of the things we'll look at here is the two covenants that are in the book of Genesis. The covenant with Noah, which um, we'll look at it later, is a covenant with all creation. Right? God promises not to destroy again. That's not a saving covenant. That's a covenant of preservation. And so God rules and reigns both in the world and in the redemptive kingdom of his church. It's not about whether or not God is in charge. But he does so in different ways. So he has an actual covenantal arrangement with your neighbors on the street, with everyone in the capital, Republican, Democrat, everyone. On planet earth. And the critters too. To not destroy them. For a time. It's not a permanent covenant. It's a provisional covenant. And so we'll get into that a little bit. Culture is valuable. But it's temporary. Provisional. And passing away. Redemption is not merely creation regained. But it is recreation gained. Christ has done the recreating work. Christ is the true second Adam. Um, 
a quote here from Vanjunin, a high view of the Lord Jesus Christ, his perfect redeeming work, and his eternal kingdom, a kingdom advancing now through the ministry and life of the church, and one day to be revealed in consummate glory apart from any work over our own human culture. Are we building, redeeming the kingdom now through our cultural labors? Or are we taking part in this common cultural undertaking, loving our neighbor for their own sake, and awaiting and inheriting a kingdom that is bestowed upon us? Those are two different visions I would submit. And that's kind of the tension that we're going to try to unpack a little bit in the weeks to come, months to come. God providentially sustains human culture. He loves it. It's beautiful. It points to his eternal truth and goodness and beauty. While at the same time, redeeming a church out of a fallen uh, world. So what? Why does this matter? Um, Encouragement for ordinary Christians in their cultural activity. Uh, Brothers and sisters, you can really be set up for disappointment if you go out into the world and think you're going to bring the kingdom of Christ. You know, I got to say... You know, if I thought the mission of our church was to redeem Washington, D.C., I'd probably go home and pour myself a few stiff ones every night. You know? um, that's quite a burden. And I think one of, one of the challenges here is that you seek to infuse this redemptive, transformative work into your knitting, your bookkeeping, your driving, your everything. It can take away the comfort and peace of the gospel. Because it's not the completed work of Christ we're looking to. It's our ongoing work each and every day. And, uh, and we know that, that we, we struggle and fall in sin. So the liberating, freeing from pressure to transform and redeem your workplace, your cultural activity. The workplace isn't merely a place for evangelism. It's not primarily a place for evangelism. Uh, maybe you evangelize in the workplace uh, by being honest and decent and hardworking. And by just being truthful and representative of the fact that, what did you do this weekend? Well, I went to church. I wish it worked with the saints. It's not about hiding your Christian faith in the workplace, but not viewing our cultural activity as instrumental to a redemptive end merely. Loving our neighbor and preserving the world in which we live, beautifying it for its own sake is a valuable thing. It's, it does join God in his creative preservation work, not in his redeeming work. So... The book basically traces uh, beginning and end. First Adam, last Adam. Luke will, uh, in two weeks, I'm preaching up in Idaho. And so Luke will do creation and fall for us. Um, Part two, um, we look at the idea of sojourn and exile. And a key theme of the Old Testament. We've already seen this in Abraham quite a bit. um, But also a key theme in the New Testament, as we read uh, tonight. Um, And so... In the Old Testament, we, we see this idea, uh, the serpent and the woman. Um, we see it in Genesis. Um, if you recall, one of our early sermons talked about the structure of Genesis. That there is the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. That promise that the woman's seed is going to crush the serpent's head. And this uh, uh, um, structuring phrase, these are the generations of, alternates back and forth. Between the ungodly seed of the serpent and the godly seed of the woman. And there is this conflict, this crisis. This week, uh, we'll see Hagar cast out, right? She shall not inherit. And Paul in Galatians and in Romans says, See, this is showing us how faith works. Um, Faith is distinct and at war with the world in that sense. 
Um, So we'll look a little bit more at the covenant with Noah, which I discussed tonight, the covenant with Abraham, and recognize this idea that we see in the Old Testament with Abraham, that God's people dwell under both covenants. Abraham can enter into a common grace covenant with Abimelech and live at peace with him while he uh, worships uh, God Most High. And, of course, we have the idea of sojourners in the New Testament. Um, One of the things that I just think, and I've mentioned it a few times, but I'm just going to read a few texts in closing, and then we'll have a little discussion as time remains. This idea of dual citizenship. Of course, in Acts 22, um, Paul is uh, getting, uh, getting ready to get whipped and beaten, and the centurion comes along and... uh, And um, Paul said, what are you about to do? Or someone else, for this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. And Paul said, I am a citizen by birth. So Paul is claiming his Roman citizenship. He's invoking his rights as a citizen uh, for his bodily preservation. um, And ultimately to protect him so he can preach the gospel. So he can continue living. And then in Ephesians 2 and in Philippians 3, two different spots, Paul says to the church, First, then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Interesting there. Notice what he's doing. He's contrasting the stranger and alien language. And that's the people who are outside of the church, right? And he's saying, you, O Christian, are citizens. Members of the household. So there is an adoption, a citizenship ceremony. And there he is, is, is emphasizing the redemptive citizenship, which is not that of being an alien or a stranger in the world. Right? Paul can turn around and say, we are aliens and strangers. But here he says, we are no longer aliens and strangers. Why? Because he's talking about our heavenly citizenship. And he says, in him, you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That is that eschatological vision. The church is the holy temple where God dwells. That's our citizenship. But it doesn't cancel our earthly citizenship. Those two are in a certain tension. And in Philippians, Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. That's the transformation that the New Testament knows. It is a transformation from above. It is uh, climactic and somewhat cataclysmic. And it is something that we are subjects of. He does to us. Um, And again, this idea that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable, the corruptible, inherit the imperishable. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says... The dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. The kingdom of God does not, um, flesh and blood cannot inherit this kingdom. It's an otherworldly, a coming kingdom. It will come to this world. So, um, briefly close with questions from you. And that's just sort of a roadmap of where we're going. And if there aren't any questions, I just want to... Hear your reflection on um, what has the church accomplished? What has she gained or lost? How has her witness uh, been um, purified or burnished or damaged in um, the great labor, the great cultural labor against uh, Roe versus versus Wade, which uh, was, of course, uh, for all intents, you know, struck down last year and 
really ushered in, as we look at the March for Life tomorrow, kind of a new phase in the cultural conversation, engagement over the unborn. Um, I have some thoughts, but I'm happy for you all to, um, to reflect on that. So any, any questions, first of all? Do you have an abortion comment? Or? No, I have two questions. Good. Yeah, so I'm going to leave to Luke next week the, the uh, careful bit about how do we talk about creation itself as gracious, the idea of the covenant of works. Um, yeah, and that's where one of my Old Testament professors um, said, redemptive grace, saving grace is demerited favor. And there's a big difference. You know, when, when you threw the baseball and broke the window and dad comes home from work and you deserve to get your hide tanned, you know, and he gives you a big hug instead. That's, that's demerited favor, right? So, I, so we want to talk about grace carefully. God's work of creation reflects his goodness, his kindness. So the, the, the life and breath and existence he gives to everything is God's kindness. Is that grace in the technical sense of redeeming sinners from death. No. They're not under a penalty of death. So grace is everywhere. Everything we have is a gift. That's what the word grace means. Of God. In our created state. Right? The canons of Dortmund. They talk about depravity. They talk about we took this good gift. And we threw it away. Right? We cast it away. And so I would say we start in a state of common grace. Everything is God's kindness and favor. Undeserved. Nothing earned. And what we did is, is we threw that away. Did we get as bad as... I mean, you know, the, the real ramifications of that is we turned to ash instantly, right? But God didn't do that. So he restrains his judgment. That's grace. And we continue to have the image of God in us. Not uh, demolished, but curved and broken and, and twisted, as it were. So the remnants of God's gracious, creative work, His image are in us. I don't know, to be totally honest, after sort of stalling for a few minutes there, I don't know that I I quite understand the force of the distinction between the remnants that's left over after the fall versus God's common grace on top of that. I sort of see it as all a continuum there. Is there something I'm missing, maybe? I'm not sure there is. It struck me recently that that's 
the emphasis of the discussion sometimes goes here is, is a really strong emphasis on uh, sort of the created order, nature, uh, natural law principles, stuff that's known by reason, right? Versus, no, this is all common grace, all good things that you have. A real strong emphasis on kind of an arbitrariness, a created thought ordering it sort of thing. And that, that shades how you think about what, how society is formed and then how you should interact with it. Because if you assume a lot of commonality in nature with, uh, with people who aren't professing believers, uh, you're going to approach the world differently. Yeah. And in a dialogue, <laughs> I used it, so that's fine. You're going to engage in dialogue yeah. and speak with it and, and, and reason with people differently than if you think that what's happening is just if God gives them grace to understand it, he will, if not, like it's not the reason is not doing it for that may be the sort of formal pattern which we have about everything is God's secret degree and you don't understand it. Yeah, I think I understand a little bit now the force of your question. So I, it sounds to me, and I'm not wired as a philosopher. I'll be the first person, sort of historically thought and and uh, theologically. I like to think about things, but it sounds to me a little bit like a pre-enlightenment, post-enlightenment thing, right? Like sort of pre-enlightenment, we just saw God's common grace baked into the structure of who we are. And to take an example of a story, Abimelech, right, that we saw in Genesis 20, like what this great crime you've brought up upon our nation by, you know, Sharing your wife as your sister. Um, and I think biblically that framework is, is God made men and women. <laughs> he made them differently. That's reflected in Abimelech society. There is a good for marriage and tribe or whatever common cultural goods that even the pagans saw there. The God-fearing uh, creatures in the world. And a part of that was just... Yeah, the image of God in them that was still there and operating, they have, you know, marriage as a structure of society is something that we see broadly across human history. So I do think that, um, you know, it's not merely common grace isn't that, you know, God sends little text messages of reason to unbelievers when he wants to, when they really need it. Um, You know, the image of Romans 1, I think, is a good picture of the suppressed knowledge, right? So man in sin knows that there is a God and he suppresses this knowledge. Now, we know that suppression can get extreme. I mean, we are living in, I think, it's always dangerous and risky to say that your period of human history is uniquely bad or uniquely good, but I think we see a culture kind of going off the rails. The ancient world had it as well, right? Where there's this a denial that there is a givenness to the created order at all. And we are utterly autonomous uh, thinking beings that can recreate in our own image anything we want. Um, so I think we have reason in the world in which we live to be really skeptical, <laughs> right, about the rational basis of conversation. But I don't think we want to abandon ever, really, um, the fact that we are all made in God's image. I think real regard for our neighbors in the world. Yes, sin is extremely powerful and corrupting. We as Calvinists believe that. And when we believe total depravity, it's important that we don't think it's as bad as possible. We mean total in its extent. In other words, it's the reason, it's the senses, it's the perception. It touches all all aspects of our, our minds and hearts and bodies, our wills as well. So, um, yeah... And then the question about Revelation. Yeah, we do have these passages, 
Um, and, and I'm just going to say, you know, I don't have a good answer to that. I want to come back because that is a good question. You have sort of key texts, um, like a lot of biblical debates on both sides. Um, it's a perennial discussion, right? And one of the things we see, both from the Old Testament prophecies and then fulfilled here, right, is the nations coming in to worship in Zion. And the question is, what is the glory that they're bringing in? You know, is it, is it the redemptive glory of a, of a global church? Uh, bringing in uh, saints from the ends of the earth, you know, Assyria and Egypt coming to worship in Jerusalem. Um, so I'll, we'll come back. You know, so you have to come back, right? That's the got to leave them hanging a little bit um, to that question because I think we do. You know, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty, the Lamb. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light. Will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Um, Just having sat through 12 hours on the book of Revelation We need to put that in the context, right? To exegete that text. We have Old Testament prophecies. Uh, We also have tremendous judgment. Like, all the nations are not coming in, right? Some things have happened in previous chapters. There's a lake of fire. Um, And so, I think one of the things that we, we really see there is that in that temple, this restrictive idea of Jew and Gentile is completely gone. And all that created glory of God. I mean, I I would say, just on a first read of that text, the climactic purpose of God's created order is fulfilled. The second Adam does his job. And some are lost. The doctrine of election stands. Not every uh, human being is saved in that redemptive work of Christ. But there is not a bit of God's created order that, that falls through the cracks in that. Um, his vision is is fulfilled, and, and we don't stop. So I think it still begs the question of, of how. But Emmeline, yes. Yeah, um, I think you raised an important question there about like how, how do we understand common cause with religious groups that we might not have confessional agreement or solidarity with, uh, you know, even outside the Judeo-Christian, right? Um, Islam or Mormon, like, you know, you could, you know, broadly more Abrahamic, right? You can get pretty diverse theological worldviews, uh, systems, and 
And in the world's eyes, that becomes the dominant or uniting factor, right? They all have something in common. Um, and part of that is, you know, when you become a political player, and to that point, you mentioned MAGA hats, right? The early pro-life movement, I think, in the early 70s, was not just a right-wing or a conservative thing. Far from it. And so, over time, what happened? You have a voting bloc that one political party sought to be prudential to cater to, right? And it became a one-sided issue. It used to really much more uh, consistently kind of crawl across... I'm sure some uh, political thinkers could correct me here if I'm wrong. But, um, and in that way... Even, even a, a, a laudable stand, sort of prophetic voice of this is wrong, this is sinful, has been sort of corrupted and used by how it is observed by the world. Just a different lens through which to view it. Lauren. Well. Um, so, so, so I think when it's 
the way the conversation flows, both sides do tend to caricature the other side, and you want to resist that. So your perspective is very, very helpful. Pox on both their houses. Um, but the, the, the caricature that, that does most bother me is, you know, I'm a strong advocate of the two kingdoms, and I, before being a pastor, like, I worked in politics and in the public sphere. That was good labor. I didn't view it as me doing Christian things or redemptive things. I just saw it as doing stuff that I thought was interesting and noble and worthwhile. And so I think two kingdoms, rightly understood, actually builds a foundation and cause for engagement with the world that doesn't conflate with the redemptive kingdom of God and the church. That's kind of one of the concerns to make a distinction there. And that's that's something that takes a little bit of explaining. Um, so I'm not... Well, let me give you one example. This might not be a great example, but some people in in the pro-life, let's just stick with that issue, have said, if you're not a church that's preaching against abortion, either from your pulpit or putting paraphernalia out front or equipping your people and arranging buses to go to the pro-life march, right? you are not taking seriously your prophetic calling as a Christian in the world. And my response... My first response to that as a pastor is, you know, we might have a third of my congregation that's totally passionate about that issue. Like, maybe it's touched their family, maybe, you know, and if they want to go and serve and engage politically with people across uh, church lines, different traditions, with unbelievers on that issue of life, like, that's great citizenship activity in this world. But it's not something that I can say, thus saith the Lord, you as a Christian shall go march. Again, you know, for life, tomorrow on the mall. I think it's a wonderful thing. But I think we have a lot of freedom in how we live our lives as believers. And, and it's, it's doesn't necessarily... Now, if you ask me, do I have to be a member of a local church? Well, yeah. There are a lot of things that believers are called to do. And I would say participation and engagement in local church, worshiping community, is one of the essential ways we manifest the body of Christ as it's coming in its fullness. And so, and so that, that is something that is a redemptive task that you are commanded to do, God say it the Lord. Cultural activity is an area of much freedom and diversity. And there are lots of different ways we can love our neighbors. You know? Uh, 
Amen. Sure. Bring, bring it on. That's right. I, I appreciate that. that. And keep people in us to account here because I, I do think, um, I think that you can fall into error on both sides. Uh, and, and I think, you know, one of the ways that a church should, let's take, again, sticking with, and I want to get to Tate here because I'm mindful of the time. A church can be active in the case for life, right? Helping members of the church, counseling, and it might not be full ministry. Like, you know, how do you care for families? How do you help parents catechize their kids and raise them with concern for chastity? How do you model family life, right? How do you, I think there are a lot of ways where church can engage on that issue of sexual sin, brokenness, uh, the destruction of the family, all of the things that are sort of the penumbras of of abortion and broken home in the modern world, right? And yes, we should be silent about those things. Um, and and acting, whether that's political action, I think is another question. Um, and again, whether it's public or maybe more private in in the interactions within the body. I mean, I think the church should absolutely, another example of another policy that people don't talk about in this sort of way, but divorce. You know, it's incredibly unpopular to discipline church members for unbiblical divorce. <laughs> and, um, and it's hard, and most of the churches just give up on it. Yeah, I just think you scandalize uh, the biological children, like cradle practices, but like the people who grew up in a church by not speaking from the pulpit. Because what happens, like if I raise my children in this church and they don't hear it from the pulpit, and we're like, like I went to church where like homosexuality we never talk about the pulpit. We get to the passage, we kind of rush over. And it's like, oh, we're, we're privately dealing with problems. We're privately dealing with problems. We're privately. It's like, this is preaching. This is what we're playing. They came up with scripture. We went by. Like, I think that's that's my. I'm 100 percent on board. I, I think the task of preaching wrong the same thing. Let me go to Kate real quick and then Josh. Church there, 
I'll, I'll challenge the old pastor. Yeah. <laughs> I always sign people up for 40 days to survive. Okay. Around there. Yeah. yeah. Bring in people in the church involved to talk about it. Uh, I just thought that was. So, you, you know, know, I mean, my first impulse is, is not to be dogmatic here or there. I, I think this is a pastoral call that, you know, I would say local elders, sessions, consistories need to make. And so, you know, it, it really does depend on context. I think the guiding light for our church and other members of our council can speak is, um, you know, that in America, we do live in a day and age where the church is politicized. It, the church has been dragged into politics. And, and um, you know, we, in a sense, want to, if we think, Luke gave a great talk, interview last night about, about the work in Birmingham, you know, if we think of the marks of the church as sort of our mission, right, our mission statement, word, sacrament, discipline. You know, we want to preach a word, we want anyone who walks in, whether they're Democrat or Republican, not to be repulsed by accidental things we're doing, but to be repulsed by the gospel, to be repulsed by the law of the gospel. Christ is the stumbling block, their sin, their guilt. Um, and so I think that's kind of the lens of the grid which we run it through. And that's where I do think, you know, it depends whether you're living in Constantine, Rome, or Nero's Rome, what kind of engagement, how the church is going to bolster its members to endure and survive and thrive as much as possible within the community in which they live. I don't want to be dogmatic about you can do this, you can't do that. So I hope that through this series we can develop some sort of guiding principles. Um, but, you know, I think it's... As much as possible, one useful distinction is it's great if individual members want to engage. But there is sort of a, an ordered distinction between the church as church putting its finger on the scale and saying, we endorse this, we advocate this. You know, I mean, what are we going to have a voter drive where people are registering people for Democrats and Republicans and before you know, we're even handed. You know? And then it's like, well, let's just, you know, let the local grocery store parking lot sign people up for the election. Uh, Jamie, Josh, you. Yeah, so my thought was actually mostly based on what Lauren was saying. Thinking about how sermons and how we address issues of the day in sermons. So I was thinking, we just talked about something more uh, through, a, um, through our series. Um, now, it's, it's interesting because like, I listen to the sermon and I hear, we're not shying away from our views on sexuality. Yeah. Um, but I can also kind of see how someone else can have a different 
Well, yeah, yeah you know, I mean, I think, to be honest, pastors are cowards like everyone else. And, you know, no matter how much, I think it's very easy for people in our tradition to say, like, well, we just preach the text. And it's like, you know, really, we have very deep-seated biases. And, you know, I think it was Bob Godfrey who sort of once said, you know, we're really good at preaching strongly against sins that we're not tempted by. And it's just a great line, right? It's really easy to fall down heavily on the then, right? And I think what the Word of God does, even with Abraham in that story, right? He's engaged in sexual sin in chapter 20. Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed in chapter 19. And... And then, you know, there's this common civil king, a Philistine, of all things, who is noble and calls him on it. And, um, and so I think it's important that, you know, again, I've heard both of these arguments. I think on the left, Christians on the left, political left will say, like, you know, conservative Christians never talk about the marketplace, right? Commerce, about, about economic justice. And that's very important. It's a crucial theme in the Bible. But, you know, I kind of mentioned in my sermon this last week that I've had friends argue a line that I've heard really frequently in the last 20 years over discussions about homosexuality. Right? The Bible's not obsessed about homosexuality. Why are you, uh, you know, culturally conservative Christians? And, and I think you need to connect the dots. Like good preaching says, look, marriage and chastity is central. Idolatry is the concern of the Old Testament. And the temple cult was... Overwhelmingly going in and engaging in temple prostitution. Right? Like, we live in a fundamentally idolatrous culture. And if you don't see abortion as a part of that, if you don't see divorce as a part of that, just our view of sexuality. And so I think you need to connect those dots, right? And I think it's good and valuable. I mean, I'm, I'm really grateful for the pro life movement. I'm grateful for the repealing of Roe versus Wade. I mean, it's ironic, right? How the big political actors. Spent a lot of time last year wringing their hands about how bad Dobbs was for the conservative movement. Many of them did. Right? They're not in principle concerned. They're playing a political game. And so um, I think there's a lot of naivete in the church on the right and left thinking that we can get involved with politics. Um, in another Bob Godfrey line where he says, you know, the church is always trying to influence the world. The more we try to influence the world, the more we get influenced by the world. And it's, it's fundamentally true. Um, and so I think we just need to be very wary about if our mission is word and sacrament and discipline. If we're supporting registration for a quasi-political public thing. And that impacts our ability to preach the word to everyone. Right? That's our mission. Can we do other things and not hinder our pursuit of that mission? That's, that's the challenge. Um, so we're five minutes before eight. So technically, uh, so terms of our rental and it's kind of our terms of um, our agreement with this is great. We're very happy to have it turn out like this in the middle of the week. We hope this continues um, because um, not all of us live in Northern Virginia anymore. So that's a good thing. We're very happy to be here. Um, I thought we would call, close. Um, do people like is 417 or is there something else? Jesus shall reign.